If you would tonight, turn with me. This is the second in a series on the short book of Jude. We are actually looking at one verse tonight. It's very rare that I do this. I don't like to use one verse very often because so often we can take that verse out of context and make it mean all kinds of other things. But this series, of course, with the uh, last sermon, the first sermon of this series on contending for the faith. I'm using, in part of my studies, a little book by a man by the name of John Benton who's written a commentary on the book of Jude. At the very beginning of that book, he quotes Garrison Keillor, the humorist and eventually a rather controversial public figure in our own country. And he quotes him saying this, There is nothing more tedious than the continuous search for novelty. In other words, it's hard to always be searching for something new. Well, when we're contending for the faith... We're contending for the old gospel. Very different than the new that the world presents. But when we contend for the faith in the old gospel of Jesus Christ presented in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, we also discover that the errors and the enemies, even within the church, are hardly new either. Just a reminder of the context, verse 4 had said this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This tonight, the verse 5, will be the first of three examples of those who would do this. And here's verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. One verse, let us ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, this is your word, written by your servant Jude. We thank the half-brother of Jesus, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we might learn, we might grow, we might trust in you. Father, give us hearts to understand it and ears to hear it. And remind us, not only of the dangers and the warnings contained therein, but of the promises of grace that you will be with your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know there is perhaps one really distinguishing factor between Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. And that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we boldly and unashamedly from this place proclaim that if you do not trust in Christ alone for salvation, you will not go to heaven. You are in danger of eternal punishment. And the warning of scripture is that if you don't trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for life everlasting, you will receive eternal punishment. Sometimes we talk about the unpardonable sin. We talk about how God will forgive all sins but that one that is unpardonable. And of course that one unpardonable sin is debated all through theological circles. The unpardonable sin is described as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How do you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit teaches us the scriptures, 
The Spirit reminds us of the Scriptures. The Spirit gives his people fruit and gives them gifts in order to serve the church. But the basic task of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus Christ. If we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we are in essence blaspheming Christ and refusing to believe in the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. God will not forgive unbelief. But praise be to God, those who are unbelievers, God may call them out of their unbelief and cause them to believe in him. The enemy casts doubt on the truth about Jesus Christ. And this enemy is not just the enemy outside that opposes Christ because they oppose all the things of God. This enemy also creeps into the church. Verse 4 had said this, we just read it. There are those who will creep in who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. To deny Christ is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And here in this passage, he's giving us one of three examples. The next example will be about angels. This third example will be about Sodom and Gomorrah. Tonight is the example of the Israelites in the wilderness of Egypt. You know the circumstances. The people of Israel descended from Abraham were in Egypt for 400 years. During that time, they became a great nation, but they were enslaved. A pharaoh was, or a king or pharaoh, rose up who did not remember Joseph, who had helped them, who was a part of the family of God. And so this particular pharaoh, who had forgotten God's work through Joseph, began to punish and enslaved the people into hard labor, and the people cried out to God for deliverance and salvation. And God answered. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Moses is a central figure. Moses has written the first five books of the Old Testament in a psalm. And here in Moses' day, God used this humble servant to come and rescue his people from Egypt. And they went into the wilderness by God's grace And he promised them a land unto themselves. But the problem is that something happened in that wilderness. And this is the example we have tonight. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What does it mean that they did not believe? I'm using different scripture passages to show what that means in God's word. The first is that they refused to believe by doubting God's power. The second thing was that they refused to believe by doubting God's law. And they also refused to believe by doubting God's plan. Now this particular verse is really consistent with much other New Testament teaching, particularly from 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, but we're going to begin with the book of Numbers that Bruce just read from tonight. So if you'll want to put your finger there in the book of Jude to refer to it, we're going to turn back to Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 37. Bruce has already read this, so I'm going to only highlight a few passages with this and just remind you of where we are in biblical history. 
In biblical history, this is after the people have been rescued and brought into the wilderness, and they were to spy out the promised land. They sent out the ten spies into uh, uh, the promised land, and the spies come back. The spies were supposed to come back and tell them about the land and how they were going to take it according to God's power and grace. Instead, all but two of the spies came back to say, we simply can't take the land because the people are too powerful. And so here in verse 26, the Lord really gets to the root of the problem. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. And then again, verse 29, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. What was the problem that the spies started when they came back their wicked report that they certainly could not drive out the people of Canaan despite God's promise that they could do so. They began a time of open grumbling. You know, this is a word that's so funny to say over and over again. I noticed that. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And here it is, the grumbling, complaining, the bitterness This is something that is not foreign to the Israelites. They've already begun to grumble and complain because they didn't have water. They grumbled and complained because they they lost their vegetables like leeks and stuff like that in Egypt. And now they're grumbling and complaining because these spies have brought back a bad report saying they might be stuck in the wilderness because they couldn't possibly conquer these people in Canaan. But what were they doing in this grumbling? They were doubting God's power. God's power to provide and God's power and plan for them to go into the promised land. To doubt God's power through grumbling is a grievous sin. And yet, as Americans, we tend to grumble as much as anybody else in the world, don't we? We grumble about the weather. We grumble about waiting at a stoplight. We grumble about the fact that We don't have the type of food that we want, even though we have an abundance of food. We grumble when somebody doesn't give us our way. But in the end, what are we really grumbling about in these attitudes of grumbling and groaning and complaining? We're grumbling against God who has the power to transform and change us. We're grumbling against the God who gives us the power to conquer enemies. We're grumbling against God who gives us leaders to whom we grumble against the most. And this open grumbling becomes outright rebellion. This is what happened in the wilderness. Verse 36 says, The men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. Notice what happened here. They grumbled amongst themselves about the state of this land. And as they did this, they brought back this report and promoted this grumbling among the people. Because when we grumble, it spreads. It spreads to discontent among others. And it's not just discontent about our desires or plans. In the end, it becomes discontent about God and his provision 
and becomes outright rebellion. These men died by plague before the Lord. But not only that, we're told that an entire generation died in the wilderness in those 40 years in the wilderness because of this grumbling and this rebellion. All but two people, the two spies who gave a good report, they're the only ones who survived to go in the promised land. So here are these spies, they all go out, spy this land. The majority of them bring back this bad report. They begin to grumble among themselves and promote this grumbling among the people. And pretty soon the entire congregation of Israel is grumbling. So there you see the danger of grumblers in a church. Pretty soon a whole church begins to grumble against God's sovereignty and God's goodness. You see, this is how mutiny begins, isn't it? In Robert Louis Stevenson's classic novel, Long John Silver certainly knew how to start a mutiny. Young John Hawkins, or not, uh, Jim Hawkins, rather. Young Jim Hawkins is hiding away in the, the hold of the ship, and he notices that there is grumbling going on amongst the sailors away from the captain and the leadership of the crew. That grumbling begins to percolate And pretty soon that grumbling begins into little acts of rebellion. And pretty soon there are conspiracies together and they seek to overthrow in mutiny the captain of the ship. It all began with grumbling. Unlike mutiny on the bounty or treasure island or all these different stories, the ancient Israelite mutiny was not on a boat but was in the desert. And you see, this is nothing that has stopped. Now, there continues to be mutiny in the church, denying God's power. In our case, not to bring us into the promised land of Canaan, but to deny God's power to transform the sinner. We're told in our society that because of victimhood or because of past oppression or because of someone's birth or the way that they are born, they cannot possibly change their spots or change from being a sinner to being a saint, particularly in certain areas of immorality. It's nothing new. God's people have always had those amongst them who have crept in to deny God's power and promote that denying. Let me tell you, the scripture tells us that once someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. To deny the power of God is to deny that God can make a sinner something new. And to deny that he can go from being a sinner to someone who has been rescued and redeemed from his sin so that we can say, such were some of you, but now you are in the kingdom of God. We still doubt God's power, and there are some who promote that within the church. Watch out. But there are also those who doubt God's law. We've looked at the little chapter in Numbers chapter 14. If you would, once again, keep your finger in Jude, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Let me read that for you tonight. 
1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, they were doubting God's law. The particular example that is used here in this passage is when Moses came back down after receiving the Ten Commandments. And when he received those Ten Commandments, Joshua thought he was hearing some sort of uh, military problem. And instead, he was hearing carousing of the people. They had, as Scripture says, broken loose. And as they doubted God's law and God's goodness... Here is the list, the four things that Paul says that they did. First of all, they committed the sin of idolatry. You see, when we doubt God's law, we doubt the very foundation of the Ten Commandments, which says there is only one God, and it's the God of the Bible, the great Jehovah God. And him alone shall we worship, and we shall not have any other idols. But in unbelief, we doubt God's law, and we make idols for ourselves. Then it says the second thing of the four is sexual immorality. When it says they had broken loose, we know what that means. They had broken loose not only in idolatry, but in what was so often associated with idolatry in those days, sexual immorality. And we read in scripture that 23,000 men of Israel died. As Moses basically said, all of those who are for God stand by me. And the Levites came to his side and he told them, go out and strike the people for what they are doing. And they struck down 23,000 people because of the sin of sexual immorality. I don't have to tell you that in our culture and day, sexual immorality is rampant in our country. But what I really don't want to tell you, but must admit, is that sexual immorality is also rampant in the church. Don't think that God will not judge the church for its immorality. The third thing on this list is testing Christ. Now this is interesting. This is the Old Testament. This is the people of God in the wilderness. And it says they were testing Christ. In other words, it's a reminder that that Christ is not just a New Testament phenomenon. The promise of Christ was in the Old Testament. And And whenever they were grumbling and complaining and committing idolatry and immorality, they were testing Christ himself 
because he was their deliverer for them looking forward to Christ, for us looking back on Christ. And they tested him. And it tells us that by this testing, what happened? Some were destroyed by serpents. This is a reference to the bronze serpent occasion or event. There were those who were complaining against God and God sent fiery serpents to bite them and cause them to die. It tells us that many people died. It doesn't give us a number, but it tells us that many people died and Moses was instructed to make a bronze serpent and to lift it up and everyone who would look upon that bronze serpent would live. And the New Testament tells us that that is symbolic of the cross of Christ, that if we look upon Jesus, look upon the cross, we will be saved if we look on him with faith. But these people were testing Christ and they died as a result. And then in case you didn't get the first point enough, it says the fourth thing, they grumbled. Paul says this as well. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Why are these things written there? To teach us. And why are they written there? To to remind us of the dangers of unbelief. In this case, doubting The law of God. You know, one of the most important events in all of history was at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Eve and Adam in the garden. Eve and the forbidden fruit. Eve had no intent, I think, when she first went into the garden that day to break God's law. But she was enticed. She was enticed by the serpent into doubting God's goodness particularly the goodness of the boundaries of his law. God's law is there not to tamp us down, but out of loving care for his people to show them the proper boundaries so that they would not get hurt and be estranged from God. And yet at that moment, Eve and Adam both doubted God's law and God's goodness and love that was contained in that law. Lawlessness is ultimately a rejection or disbelief in God's goodness and love. When we say, you know, it's just not fair that God makes this law. For instance, if I'm married and I find someone else that I think is my soulmate. It's just not fair, society tells us, that we can't have our soulmate as opposed to the person we're married to. But God's law says this, you shall not commit adultery. We doubt God's goodness and God's grace in unbelief when we seek to break that law. And there are those in the church today. Those in the church today who will promote the idea of saying sin is not so bad. Breaking God's law is okay as long as you mean well. As long as you are loving and committed. As long as you weigh out the options and try to do what you think is the best, God will not frown on those little sins. But to doubt God's law is to be a promoter of unbelief. We doubt God's power. There are those who doubt God's law. There are those, also those who doubt God's plan. One more passage tonight. That's from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This begins with a quotation from Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked at that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. When we doubt God's plan and we fall prey to the sin of unbelief, this scripture tells us about our heart. First of all, it tells us we have an evil heart. Of course, this comes naturally. We are evil people. We are sinners by nature. But this is those who would have an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil heart that is intent on doing what displeases God. But it's not only an evil heart, it's a hardened heart. They refuse to listen to the call to repentance. And I have to say, even though we we hear about Pharaoh's hard heart, even more illustrative is the heart of the recalcitrant Israelite in the wilderness and the Israelites later on in their walk with the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 7 of his prophecy, he called the heart of recalcitrant people from Judah diamond hard. That's how hard it was which led the Lord to scatter them from Judah into all the places around the Mediterranean basin. Here he's warning us to be a person of unbelief is to have a hardened heart. But it's not only a hardened heart, we're reminded it's a disobedient heart. You see, if we don't believe in God, we will not not obey him. That famous song, Trust and Obey, that we're going to sing after this particular sermon is a reminder that we are believing God by obeying him. And then, of course, to wrap this all up, they had an unbelieving heart. Think of all the things the Israelites did in the wilderness, committing idolatry, grumbling, sexual immorality, the list goes on and on. Think about the Israelites through their history Not only idolatry, but trusting in other nations, trusting in other peoples, trusting in their own power instead of God. All the things that they did, uh, circling into the the great depravities at the end of the book of Judges, uh, ending in, in the terrible circumstances of the wicked kings of Israel, even to the point of sacrificing their children to idols. And yet here, It's all because, not just those things they did, but because they refused to believe. This is a warning against unbelief. Back to the verse that we read in Jude, chapter, or verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
You see, contending for the faith is not easy. Sometimes we think that God's promises or plans could not possibly work. Sometimes we think God can't possibly rescue me from this particular sin. God could not possibly continue to protect the church in this day when the world seems so set against it. God could not possibly bring us into a time where there is no more crying or pain or sin. And so what we do when we disbelieve is we begin to compromise. Compromise is on the menu of unbelief. And so what has happened in the church today is we stop preaching the word. We start preaching our ideas. We start promoting the ways of the world and the philosophies of the world. We begin to bring in not the power of God, but the power of self-thinking and self-belief. We begin to doubt God's law and his goodness and his love for us. And then we begin to grumble and complain. And pretty soon, <laughs> pretty soon the church is no longer about faith in Jesus Christ. It's an entirely different gospel. This is the first reminder of three by Jude. And it's the basic sin of unbelief. There are dangerous teachers in Jude's day who crept into the church unnoticed and began to promote grumbling about the ways of the old gospel. And it's a problem today. There are people all around us that says it's more important to see this new thing. This new thing, a new way, a new compromise, a new way of loving, a new way of uh, averting the idea that God is a judging God. But here we are reminded by Jude, God is a God of justice and judgment as well as a God of love and grace. Let me commend to you, remind you these things. You have fully known that God saved this people out of Egypt. But these things were written in the Old Testament as examples for us to learn and to grow by them so that we would not fall into their errors of idolatry, immorality, testing, and grumbling. Are you one of those people? God is calling you to repent and to believe upon him. Are there leaders in your church? Are there those amongst your assembly that would promote these ideas or promote these circumstances? There are those who would profess to be believers but invite people to participate in immoral things or invite them to grumble against the people of God and God himself. I call you. Remind them of God's grace and show them God's testimony that we might contend for the faith. The warning against unbelief is real, it is true. If you fail to believe in Christ alone for salvation, there is great warning, great judgment to come. Come to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's not just that the world out there ridicules and mocks the faith of Jesus Christ. But Lord, there are those within the church that by work behind the scenes, by their lifestyle, by refusing to act consistently with the ways that they teach, by basically just refusing to believe the gospel, encourage others to sin in this way. Lord, protect us as you have promised. You have promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against your church. We pray, Lord, that we would trust your plan, trust your promise, trust your grace, trust the goodness of your law, and all of these things, we pray.